In giving an entertainment of this sort, the mistress must remember that it is her duty to see that her guests are happy, comfortable, and quite at their ease. And the guests should also consider that they've come to the house of the hostess to be happy. Thus, an opportunity is given to all for innocent enjoyment and intellectual improvement. When acquaintances may be formed that may prove invaluable through life, and information gained that will enlarge the mind. Welcome this week's Wednesday with Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm John Stone. Let's see. We are back with disc six of Lord Reese BBC set. Last week we did a show on AI and what AI means. Lord Reese posted on one of these forums. uh, You know what I really want to do? I want to do an AI Rodney Burke and create a whole new Pop Go the Beatles show. (laughs) All right. And he'd be the man to do it. He probably knows the most about these BBC shows of anyone who wasn't paid to know about these BBC shows. True that. John Lennon was prescient when he said, nothing is real. (laughs) And as the song goes, nothing to get hung about. (laughs) Unless you you want It's not real? Okay, fine. (laughs) We just got to live with it. Yeah. This week, disc six of Lord Reese BBC set, we are two... August of 1963. Right. The first one was recorded in the last few days of July, but it was a big time for the band. The Saturday clubs were kind of different from their own shows. Right. And I think they have regarded them as a little bit different, although they really kind of seem to be sliding into it. This is to a certain extent, is them maybe getting a little bit tired of these radio gigs? We booked, say, two groups for a a three-and-a-half-hour session, and during that, each group would do five numbers, and three of them had to be up-tempo, and the other two couldn't be less than medium-tempo. They had to do as they were told, and if they didn't, that was the last one they did. You don't come along and tell BBC producers what to do. A a minimum of five numbers. Is it the difference really of Saturday Club is that they were pre-recording the tracks and putting them in the shows. Other shows they were doing more or less live. The Pop Go the Beatles show would be talk, sing, talk, sing, talk, sing. Right. It's really why the renditions are more clear 
And as we go along, this month was really a pretty important month for the Beatles. They just recorded She Loves You. They were starting in um, with the Beatles. And this would kind of be the end to ballrooms and such. They were moving on to the next stage. Some of these renditions are almost exactly the studio versions. So they were using these shows to tighten things up. Yeah, and in some cases, they're still working on things, even though they've already recorded it. Like the Twist and Shout, for example, they were clearly looking for a way to be able to play it, but have John be able to come out of it with some semblance of his voice. After this, they start chopping it down anyway, don't they? You know. Yeah, exactly. By 64, they, they're just kind of doing the half version of it. Right. This will get you to scream. and John can just lip sync the rest of the way through. <laughs> Right. Lipsy can move his ass so Ringo knows where they are in the song. Because <laughs> by that time, that was needed for sure. The show starts, as all of these discs have started with, is just a little bit of something that Lord Reith has pulled from somewhere off of the BBC. It's a little clip from some, I guess, women's homemaking type show called The Proper Hostess. I think he included it just because he liked their use of the word mistress throughout this whole thing. I think this is just to give you a flavor of what radio sounded like at that point. proper starts with Saturday Club, recorded July the 30th and aired August the 24th, 1963. Right. And from the day they recorded it to the day it hit, things are rapidly changing for them. First off, we get something which was an old standby at this point. We get Paul on Long Tall Sally. It's, it's a particularly hot vocal here. Yes. He's enjoying himself. And, and it's very much like the record. You know, they duplicate that really well. His vocal is maybe a little bit more on the Little Richard side. Not so much as Umai Soul, which we're going to get shortly here. Right. But it's maybe just a little bit more rough edge than it was at EMI. Perhaps. It's real close. He gives it his all. And, and your estimation, it's a bit more. Just a bit more, yeah. Okay. It should be noted that this day... The 30th of July, they were in the studio recording for with the Beatles. Right. And so in the afternoon, they went to the London Playhouse to record two BBC radio shows. Do you know what they recorded that day? They started with a bunch of copy tunes on that album. 
Long Toss Alley is followed by the very first airing of She Loves You on British radio. Yes. They're playing very well, and it sounds good, but I think they haven't quite figured out how they wanted to present the song live. My reaction was, you know, George's guitar figures are really well executed, and everything seems really tight. John, in particular, seems ever so slightly nervous on the lead vocal. Could be. Then the woos. And you know you could be the woos they haven't figured out. They're not to the shake their heads thing yet. <laughs> Right. It's like, well, are we going to do a little Richard woo? Or are we going to do like a Carl Perkins woo? Or what is it? <laughs> so they're, they're trying to figure it out. We're going to do the Diana woos. <laughs> but they very clearly knew that this was going to be a hit song. Yeah. It certainly was recorded as a single. And knew it was going to hit, I think. I mean, if George Martin could say, please, please be your first hit, then I'm sure he could go, and this one is also a hit. From when Ringo does that thing on the drums at the very beginning, it's like, yeah, that's going to do it. I mean, that that's that Motown thing about grab them from the very beginning of the song. Right, so, and, and I think this is a really good live version. I think some of the later ones we get are maybe going to be a little bit better, but they knew they had the song. It's just a matter of okay, how are we going to do it when we're playing it live? And that doesn't make it a bad version, or it's just not quite the studio version. True enough. To me, it sounds like they're working it out. The record was brand new at this point. Very brand new. And I think that as an English kid listening to the radio, they would have been mightily impressed. It's really well done. And so you wouldn't think of anything other than, wow, this is a cool song. If you hadn't heard the song, if this was the first time you heard the song, it's like, what is that? <laughs> right. Where did that come from? Not like anything else I'm listening to. Especially, you know, you, you look at what's on either side of it on this show. So She Loves You is followed by Glad All Over, the Carl Perkins tune. You know, we've talked about how well George's Liverpudlian draw is suited for doing country. And this is another one of those. Rockabilly in particular. I mean, he, he does it really, really well. And you hear that and you go... There's a Wilbury. <laughs> <laughs> you touch gold silver like electric wall. You never thought to make love. I was looking at the lyrics of the original. George goes, your kiss goes through me like an electric wire. And the line is, every part of me glows. I think he's singing something else. And what do you think he's... I've always thought he's kind of singing, and when we go and make love... Which would have been quite a thing to be singing on the radio in 1963. I'm not sure they would have tried to pull that one off. He 
is slurring it a little bit. He's not really singing it the way Carl Perkins does. Well, your touch goes through me like electric bar. Well, every part of me glows. I don't take him much looking to see what I got for the show. Whereas the rest of it is more or less, it's a version of what Carl Perkins does. There, he's saying something different. Right. Again, maybe that's just my ears, but it's like, it's not every part of me glows. So either George is being naughty or you are. <laughs> well, this is true. So. And we've established that both of us are quite capable. <laughs> you, me, and George are quite capable of being naughty on occasion. Yeah, well, there you go. It's a good thing. On to some chat here. Uh, the, someone seems to have sent the Beatles a cardboard puzzle box. Now, first of all, start at the top, lift the lid. There's a photograph of Liverpool on the top. It says inside, fresh from Wackerland. Lift lid again. <laughs> lift lid again. There's another yeah. lid. The Beatles, and it says, hi, Wack. <laughs> How do you do, Wack? <laughs> yeah. And Liverpool again. And down at the bottom, pull right out and turn over. Well, pull it another out bit of cardboard. Out, yeah. Yeah. See, what's it? It, oh, yeah. Oh, it tells us who Bedstead yeah. is. Bedstead. We find out that Bedstead is Jackie Newstead huh, of 33 Cameron Street, Liverpool 7, and Tomcat, that's a nickname, is <laughs> Linda Thompson of 4 Wedgwood Street, Liverpool 7. Oh, well, hang you on, go. you haven't quite finished yet, oh, because yeah. there's another little flap in the bottom of the box, like a conjuring trick, this, and it says, ask the Beatles if this is the box. Well, is it? What box? Oh, that's a very good question. I must remember to ask Harry. Anyway, <laughs> will you sing for us now? Reading fan mail, and they'll all take turns doing it, and this is Paul's turn. We've talked about this as we've gone through these shows. There's this little in-joke about Harry and his box, so the fans are getting in on it. Right. I guess the closest analogy would be those kids' books we see these days where you open the page, and then it's like, pull out this card and, and read this, and then flip it over and read that, and that will then take you to the next page and so on and so forth. But this was handmade. That's cool. That's being close with your fans when you're all <laughs> when you're all playing games like that. That's pretty intimate in a way. Well, I mean, they had definitely been listening to the show. Right. Because, you know, they said, is this the box? The box? I wonder whether that box still exists somewhere. Yeah. It's a shame we don't have pictures or a video of it. <laughs> Granted, the description that comes out is pretty much you can see it in your mind's eye. But I kind of would have liked to have seen what that actually looked like. Yeah, this is uh, still, you know, the Beatles fan club as it expanded and, and grew. Those girls were writing to the Beatles a lot. And also in this time period, this is where the first issues of Beatles Monthly started to come out. That's was in the same couple of months. That's right. August and September. AI told us that the Beatles were only kind of a boy band, but the boy band end of things. And it's not them who's doing it. It's the fans who are taking that to heart. Yeah. Gorgeous George and Paul and his eyelashes and such. Well, there was a template in a way for managing a pop star. I think Brian certainly was aware of it and utilized that idea a lot in the beginning, but it grew into something else very quickly but certainly at the beginning the term boy band is a late thing but what they were was a teen idols for the magazines and the records and they weren't artists of any shape well and rock and roll wasn't an art form exactly 
you know, it was something that was eminently disposable. Right. And make your money fast. And they're still kind of thinking that it's like, oh, well, maybe there's a year, maybe there's two years, uh, you know, a little bit later on, we're going to get some excerpts from Mersey Sound and, and you can see exactly kind of what they were thinking at that point. Right. It's like, well, what are we going to do next? Right. Exactly. And when they're thinking of the longest possible thing, it's about five years, you know, 10 years. Who'd want to see that? The upshot of this puzzle box is they're asking for twist and shout. And so, as we mentioned, it's a little bit bluesier, although John is still doing his utmost to get through the vocal and scream it in that same fashion. Yes, it's not far from what he did on record. It's still rough. It's more under control. The thing I noticed about this version is Paul's bass is really prominent, which kind of drives the song slightly differently than the way you normally hear it. going to get another version of twist and shout from another band which well really makes you appreciate just how much the beatles did to make this their song yeah all right so that is followed by john's reading of the letter well, despite the fact that the next request comes from 132 perry road sherwood in nottingham it's headed up the pool and starts dear whack so john you take it from there dear whack Please ask those gorgeous lads, <laughs> call the Beatles, bah, 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 to sing You Really Got a Hold on Me, for Di, Gus, Fizz and me, also for the Beatles themselves, especially Paul, <laughs> and everybody that was in the Roy Orbison tour. I am a regular listener of Popco the Beatles, good lad, if you're a lad, and please tell the boys that all the girls in our office think it is a fab show. Thank All right, you. oh, stop the band. Whoa, how splendid. I don't know, the whole thing kind of reminds me of the tapes he makes later on, 65, 66, you know, at his house. Yeah, because he keeps breaking into silly voices. Yes, exactly. And with the music in the background, you kind of go, well, that's kind of like one of those tapes. Once again, Dear Whack and makes reference to uh, everybody that was on the Roy Orbison tour. So that wasn't that long ago that that had ended. Correct was the Roy Orbison tour, then they wrote She Loves You, then they recorded She Loves You, and now here they are less than a month later after that. That was fast-moving machinery there. Then John ends it by saying mother. Why is he saying mother? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. A reference to mother from Plastic Ono Band. <laughs> that is prescient. So the whole point of it is to lead you into You Really Got a Hold on Me, which is, again, kind of bass-forward, but the version is exactly like the record in virtually all respects. I think it's a little bit closer to the smoky version than uh, I think they did a little bit more with the harmonies for the version on the record. Well, that's kind of a matter of mixing, I think, but this is, you know, the, the arrangement is, is exactly the same. 
they had already recorded the studio version. So the studio version was recorded on July the 18th with the money devil in her heart until there was you. Wow. And there had also been a couple of previous versions of this on previous pop go the Beatles shows. Right. So, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe they were trying to do the studio version as closely as they could, but they couldn't replicate it completely. I mean, George Martin wasn't there to make things happen. So yeah, true that. And maybe it would be a little bit closer if we had a slightly higher resolution copy. I mean, this is, like I say, this is ever so slightly tatty in the extant tape. Right. You know, this sounds like someone may have had their recorder next to the radio, and then they've cleaned that up a little bit. Their final song from this show was I'll Get You, the B-side of She Loves You. The EMI version was recorded on July the 1st. It's a little bit more pop than the studio version, I think. Right. The feel of it is popier. Yeah, it's almost like just in case they were trying to uh, record another single. Although the studio version is not quite that forward-looking as far as being, this is something that we could put out as a single. This sounds more like something along the lines of For Me to You. I think as far as their songwriting was concerned, in their minds, everything they wrote was going to be a single. That was their intention. The fact that they didn't become singles I mean, I'm not sure that There's a Place was ever meant to be a single, but the songs, after they started getting some success, I think I'll Get You, It Won't Be Long, all those songs were meant to be singles in their heads. The other thing that we will note here is, you know, we always hear about Brian doling out the time. You can really see that at work here. It's like, okay, you got the morning at EMI, then you got to go and do two radio shows in the afternoon, and then you got a midnight matinee. I mean, it is kind of like Hard Day's Night. That's exactly that. That's kind of, I think, the whole brilliance of a Hard Day's Night is how it's not them, but it is them. They were a hard-working band. They were young and ambitious, but that took a lot of energy because it was nonstop for a while. It took them four months to get with the Beatles recorded. Whereas, I mean, you know, that's maybe a week worth of solid recording. Right. Were they to have a week just to record the album, they could have recorded the entire with the Beatles album in a week. I mean, especially considering please, please me was mostly recorded in a day. Right. But you know, what's going on is the constant touring, the promotion, you know, the touring, the radio shows, you have to write the damn material. And so even when they are taking a break in a way, they're doing week-long sessions at various places in Britain. And that's their rest. (laughs) As Ringo says, then we drive off and go judge a beauty pageant. Right, yeah. Nor is that all they did. (laughs) We won't go there quite yet. Uh, (laughs) What else was going on? This was when Brian was booking Paris for January. Yeah. Happened fast and nonstop. The next show is the next edition of Pop Go the Beatles. It was recorded two days later on the 1st of August and aired the 27th of August, 1963. As with the Saturday Club, they start with a little Richard tune, Paul doing Ooh My Soul. And again, he is just, you can hear him singing out the top of his head, as he likes to say.
he could do that. that. And that, that voice is a large part of what made his name with John and some of the rock and rollers. He could do little Richard and Elvis. You combine that with George doing the rockabilly thing. I mean, that's probably part of the reason why George and Carl Perkins were as close as they were. Right. George's solo is ever so slightly more 50s feel in that solo than what we're used to from George in most things. And he he does another one. There's actually two separate solos in this thing. And he does them both. Well, yes. He doesn't give the other one to John. Right. Although it's not a great mix, you can hear Ringo is just going all at it. This is why Ringo was the drummer for the Beatles. Yeah. You just listen to the playing on this song. He had that feel. He drove that. This is followed by uh, more chat. Oh, my soul. And oh, my arms. We've we've just flown into Manchester here from London to uh, record this show. Well, it's... Uh, <laughs> It's good to see you again, fellas, in these uh, foreign parts. They all laugh. It's a slight version of, uh, boy, are my arms tired. Right. How are you? Very well, thank you. Oh, great. Yeah, it's fine. Well, what are yeah. you doing at the moment, by the way? Uh, we're playing in Liverpool at the moment. We've never been there for months, you see, so... <laughs> it's good to be back. Anybody yeah, over there like a request that you can do right now? Well, we'll do a request for everybody. Yeah. Good. What do you suggest? Uh, don't ever change one of the oldies. Don't ever change, which... Is a Goffin and King song. Great tune. George sings it really well. The hit version that they're covering was from the Buddy Holly Les Crickets. Right. It's from 61. George refers to it as an oldie. So they've been playing that one a while because this is mid-63. And then as we learned from Alan Cozen, Brinsley Schwartz went to Paul and <laughs> asked how to play this song because they were looking to do their cover of it better. There's a long story about that in the McCartney legacy. Right. As one of those songs which aren't available in any other form, it's like, great. It's a good version. And here we see yet another side of the band. Right. It's a very entertaining song. Okay, this is followed by a couple of R&B acts. Uh, the Cyril Davies R&B All-Stars with a song called country line special which is described as being exponents of the original rhythm and blues sound you can see where the stones were to come from they the stones were doing much the same thing at this period in time This was an example of the, the British blues scene at that point. There are a lot of bands in that. In that. And, the, and that is followed by uh, My Babe by Long John Baldry. Long John Baldry is probably best known to us these days as being the guy who bought Reg Dwight to the world. <laughs> right. And, of course, at that point, he was with Cyril Davies. So this was the, the beginning of his career. Baldry would also appear on Around the Beatles uh, in 64. This is good stuff, but I don't know how well it's aged. I mean, this is very much of that era. Yeah, I'm out playing. 
If you're into delving into the British blues scene as it goes backwards in time, you know, these groups had their place. Most of the people in this had long careers in the British blues scene, well into the 70s and 80s. Okay, this is followed by another version of Twist and Shout. This one's maybe slightly more Mersey beat. They kind of slow it up a little bit and put a little bit more twang in the guitars. At this point, John is not singing quite as all out as he was in the previous versions. I thought it was them playing with some other drummer. It doesn't sound like Ringo at all. The beat's not the same. I think it's a bad miking. That's the one where you you got you just got that kick drum all the way through. Uh, I'll have to listen to it thirty more times to figure that one out because I was just like, "Wow, that's weird." This is followed by uh, another introduction to "She Loves You," but unfortunately, the version itself does not still exist. Yeah, we have the intro; we just don't have the goods. So, and John and Paul are busy joking around. Uh, Here's a brand new record by the Beatles. It's written by Paul and John here. It's only just been released. Tell us something about it. Well, Andy, it's a record, you see, Rod. 45 RPM. And just released. Just released. And it's called She Loves You! Then what I will bet is probably your favorite introduction. Yeah, Mr. Burke, we hate you. You never crack a funny joke, and I'm sure you pay the Beatles to laugh at you. But we'll take it all back if you get them to sing a song for us. Love to the Beatles from Rosemary, Jane, Carol, Diane, Leslie, and Lynn of Chatham. Well, I'll let you into a secret. The Beatles hate me too, and they pay me not to crack any funny jokes, so there. (laughs) We've made enough comments about poor Rodney and his uh, (laughs) dated humor. Yeah. (laughs) But the resolution is, well... No, you're wrong. The Beatles hate me too. Yeah, I thought that was that was a good response. Which goes into Anna, a really nice version of Anna. Yes. Although there's a part that John sings in the recorded version where he goes to a higher note. I've been searching. Um and he doesn't hit that. And it should it was very noticeable to me. It was like Oh, John, you left out the best note. <laughs> All of my life, I've been for a girl that I love you. But let me tell you now that every girl I've ever had breaks my heart and me sad. not quite that way on the the original arthur alexander version i don't think i think that was a john thing for the record well he's a genius 
<laughs> this kind of is more like the Arthur Alexander version. That could be. And then the show ends with Shot of Rhythm and Blues. You just see this as a big dance number, can't you? This almost could have been the twist and shout. Yeah. They wanted something that was lively, but wasn't quite so up-tempo as twist and shout. And what's really amazing when you listen to it is John and Paul are singing in unison. It's just like, wow, they are so close that it's just amazing. Well, I mean, that's where the 10,000 hours comes in. Exactly. You know how the other person is going to pronounce that word and, you know, the timing of it. I mean, they have it down so perfectly that in listening to it, I I never hear it break, really. Okay, then a brief interview from a show called Nonstop Pop, which was recorded the same day as the Saturday Club with someone named Phil Tate. Right. I mean, nothing too, too exciting. Although you listen to this interview, it's kind of the thing we were saying. They're moving out of one place and starting their drive toward the next. Yeah. You know, I noticed in this several times, Ringo in particular, he's just barely, he's, he's talking, he's like, it's really a mumble, really, you know? And I think it's George who's also kind of low key. And so you think, they're going to get a lot better at interviews. I mean, that's something they're going to learn as well because this is an early interview and they'll get to a point where they're louder. Let's start off with you, Ringo. Everybody knows the Beatles as a Liverpool group, but were you all actually born in Liverpool? Yes, every one of us. Are you keeping your homes in Liverpool or do you plan on moving to London or anything like that? I don't think any of us are moving. We must have a base in London, you know, because we're there more than we're in Liverpool at the moment, but we're not moving our houses. This is now July. In seven months would be Kennedy Airport. Right. Uh, Although, I mean, they had kind of gotten the press conference thing down. The interview, maybe not quite as much. And, I mean, they were never great at it. Look at 66 and what they gave to Maureen Cleave. All of them. I mean, not only bigger than Jesus, but they're definitely little interviews as opposed to big interviews. I mean, they could do the big interviews. Yeah, but I'm not really speaking of content so much because some of these interviews that are coming up, you know, they are the original stories that were told and they're very familiar. But I was talking more about delivery than I, hmm. than I was about content, you know. This is a very interesting couple of minutes here. Yeah, I agree. And where it fits in to this change which is going on. Although it ends with Ringo asking for Billy Jay's bad to me. It's like, we're going to give another Brian act to a little pub here. <laughs> yeah. Although Billy Jay had already been on the charts with his cover of Do You Want to Know a Secret? Right. That is then followed by the next Pop Go the Beatles, recorded on August the 1st and aired the 3rd of September. Short version of Pop Go the Beatles, followed by more or less the standard, here's John Paul, George, and Ringo from Rodney Burke. All right, let's pop. 
then for me to you which is now at this point the old single because she loves you is out right right and it's, it's a decent version no harmonica kind of straightforward a little bit more at it at that drum break at the very beginning you know you got the guitars and, and then you got what on the record is just a short drum break he takes it out for at least another couple of seconds cool agreed the song that came up next which, which is I'll Get You the vocals are real tight but the guitars are almost non-existent It's another case of that has to be weird miking because you can hear those hand claps perfectly. Yeah, for sure. And the syncopation between the drums and the hand claps, that's something that you don't necessarily appreciate on the record. And here it's like, oh, wow. Right. Very cool stuff. We get the guests. Now, this guest is a group which played a role in Beatles history, Brian Poole and the Tremolos. Right. London band, closer in, DECA artists, I presume. Exactly. And what do they do? They do a bunch of covers. Yeah, right. Again, it's thank goodness that DECA rejected them because this could have been the Beatles. The, the funny thing is that they open up with Twist and Shout. It's weird. It's yes. note for note, virtually, the Beatles version. They don't, eh, they don't. Not some of it is. Some of it is. There, there's a lot more of the La Bamba style guitar than the Beatles ever wanted to try. Maybe so. But the arrangement, the way they put it all together, is the Beatles version. <laughs> The solo and then then the ah uh, yeah, ex- exactly yeah, that both of those are straight out of the Beatles version. Rodney Burke says Brian Poole and the Tremolos took time out to twist and shout by permission, of course. What I will say is I will say they were a very tight band. This is a good performance. It's no doubt it's not original, like you say. It's stealing maybe half of it from the Beatles version, and the other half is straight out of La Bamba. And now, granted. Twist and Shout, the Isley's record borrowed some from La Bamba, but this is just blatant. I can remember Trini Lopez had a song called Lemon Tree, which also had that kind of beat. And sometimes I hear that in things like this. <laughs> lemon tree, very pretty, and the lemon flowery sweet, but the fruit of the poor lemon is impossible to eat. 
there was a Latin trend going on about that time. Yeah. But what I hear most notably is I hear that La Bama guitar. Which is almost the number one guitar from the Ruddles. Then more chat. Requests for money. The first one is from my bank manager. More of Rodney Burke telling dumb jokes. <laughs> I hate him. All right, fellas, let's have the money. <laughs> the weird thing about this is that the drums are buried, but the kick is right to the fore. The best things in life are free. You can keep him for the best and please. Now give me more. That's what I want. 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 The whole song is in a strange way more laid back more kind of in the pocket it's all about Ringo's beat I mean it's not the best version that they've ever done but it's not the worst I think if we got a proper mix it would actually be a little bit better it's just you know what we have is not real great it's not terrible it's just not real great right then Rodney Burke reading a letter Dear sir, I'm requesting this for my friend John Pennington. Well, that's very polite. I don't care. <laughs> it's there's a place, but it's there's a place from tape. This is from the 2nd of July. I'm not sure why they did it that way. And it also starts a little bit abruptly because of that. The Beatles may have been out having a smoke and they didn't want to change around the instruments from Brian Poole. So. Could be. I mean, certainly the version of There's a Place is faster. It's like there's no nuance to this song. They have reduced this song to like a minute and 45 seconds. But I mean, as I say, they didn't play it. It's like, well, okay, you know, we got a version of that on tape. Use that. The Musicians Union will never notice. Aha. Then more Brian Poole and the tremolos with a version of Do You Love Me. Oh, boy. Uh, This is one of the things that John frequently complained about. It's the thin white British guy's trying to sound like black Southern musicians. It's not a bad version, and the guitars are nice, and, and the tremolos are actually a really tight band, as I had mentioned before, but it just doesn't sound right. Do You Love You was a hit for the Dave Clark Five. The Dave Clark Five version is a little bit poppier, isn't it? I mean, this is a little bit more like the soul version. Okay, then one of the ones that we always hear off of the BBC, it's John singing the lead on Honey Don't. Very cool. More rockabilly. Clearly a song he likes. We still get a lot of drums, but here we get a little bit more of the cymbals. And we also get a slightly extended guitar solo. John's the better singer, but, you know, I think we're just so used to kind of Ringo's version of it. Yeah. It's how iconic they are. They just imprinted that, you know, because I think the same way. It's John just does it more naturally and 
with a cool effect. One more from Brian Poole and the Tremolos. Uh, I can tell. It's like, that's enough of them for now. Well, I can tell Please, I hope there's not going to be a whole other CD of Brian Poole. That would be the AI that Lord Reef <laughs> puts together. Brian Poole on the Saturday Club. <laughs> it goes on. Now, two young ladies have sent us a scarf as request for the next number. It's a, it's a beautifully knitted piece of work with the request embroidered. And it's as follows, to Paul George, Ringo, John, please sing Roll Over Beethoven for Sandra and Sheila Newcastle. It's a lovely thing, isn't it? Yeah, thanks a lot. Lovely scarf. And there's one to me. Now, honestly, this is the first request I've ever had sent to me, and it's Dear Rodney, please could the boys sing Roll Over Beethoven for Pat, Sue, Sharon, Pierre, Christian, they're lovely names, and Shep the Sheepdog, and also for Beethoven himself. All right, fellas, roll over, Beethoven. So, do you want the box... Or do you want the scarf? I think I want the box. Ah, more mystery. I know what a scarf looks like. You just haven't seen the song request or the names. And the request is for Rollover Beethoven. George, he's got a little bit more sandpaper in his voice here. I think it rocks a little bit harder than the studio version. Yeah, this might be one that was sad that George Martin didn't mix. Again, it's a case where the mix is just not all that great. Yeah. Although we do get the bass loud and clear. You can hear Paul. That may be the direction to go with AI is to duplicate what George Martin did. Interesting idea. So the show ends. Roddy Burke once again with his uh, Till Next Tuesday at 5. And we get the long version of Pop Go the Beatles, a full minute 10 out of this. Right. And then because Lord Reith likes to keep things chronological, we get some excerpts from uh, the Mersey Sound, which is that television program which we're all really pretty familiar with. It's the one where John and I will go on songwriting and Ringo wants to be uh, a string of hairdressers. Right. You've seen all the, these pieces of video. They've been in everything. <laughs> this is maybe the first really and truly iconic bit of TV that they had done. Maybe the Some Other Guy, the Granada Cavern stuff. But at that point, the Granada Cavern stuff wasn't that widely seen in the UK. That's true. And it should be noted, it's not completely Beatles. There are other axes. I guess the best way to describe it would be Brian Epstein and his stable featuring the Beatles. If you've never seen the whole show. Right. It, it is actually a really cool show at the Manchester theater between Tuesday, the 27th and Friday, the 30th was where they did their filming. They did a version of twist and shout and a version of she loves you in, in their suits. And then they would also do a love me do. Right. What Lord Reith gives us is he gives us some of the excerpts from the interviews Again, you've probably heard them, but it's nice to have them here. 
Okay. You know, you put them in this context. Yeah. There's probably not enough room for the next Pop Go the Beatles. So it's like, okay, we'll do this. And it it kind of keeps things in order. It keeps the historical perspective right. We get a bit of the twist and shout. a story about a special kind of noise, a noise worth a small fortune, a noise that has made a provincial city, for a time at least, the metropolis of pop music. This is the story of the Mersey Sound. Uh, we get the Brian Epstein interview. The Beatles were then just four lads on that rather dimly lit stage. <laughs> it was a dark stormy night. And uh, I was immediately struck by the that music, that beat. And I like Brian's accent, and you can see why the Beatles might have thought he was posh by the way he talks about things being... Um, get to the stage where we had a recording contract and we were having um, the first record issued. And uh, from there to not the present, well, where their last record sold half a million copies within 10 days of issue. <laughs> Very different from their accents. Then a bit more of Twist and Shout. Then a bit of the interview with each of them. John talking about Love Me Do and... The best thing was it came to the charts in two days. And everybody thought it was a fiddle because our manager's stores send in these, what is it, record things. Returns. Returns. And everybody down south thought, oh, oh, he's buying them himself or he's just fiddling the charts. You know? But he wasn't. The leathers, that they look like four Gene Vincents. And it is Paul who says that uh, it was getting old hat and that, uh, well, Brian suggested suits, just ordinary suits, and that's what they changed into. So we just got what we thought were quite good suits and just got rid of the leather gear. Uh, that was all. So the new idea was pinched anyway. Oh, yeah, I had my pants pinched. Well, gee, is that the way he remembers it? And it wasn't that long ago, whereas the story when they showed up Oh, maybe a year and a half, two years ago, was that Paul just gave them away. Really? They had already decided that they weren't going to wear the leathers anymore. And it's like, as we know, at the Cavern, there was very little difference between front of stage and backstage. And either he just left them there or someone came and asked him, oh, do you want those anymore? No, no, we don't need them. Here, take them. These are the trousers that Paul McCartney used to wear. It's written in there, Paul. Mike was in the Yorkshire Jazz Band, which supported the Beatles on many occasions at the Cavern Club in Liverpool, and he became good friends with the group's manager. We were sort of looking around the dressing room to see everything was gone, and the trousers were in a bag hanging up. Epstein said, oh, they're Paul's trousers. Take them, you know, have them, and then I'll get them out of the leather, and he says, I'll get them into these suits that I've organised. Then on, the Beatles started wearing smart suits. And then 40 years later, they would sell at auction because they still had Paul's name. And it hadn't worn out completely. So that was how they were to, able to authenticate. Yes, these actually were Paul's leather trousers. Amazing. This is not even 18 months since that event. And, and Paul's saying they got pinched. Hmm. <laughs> well, if you want me to be shocked that Paul doesn't remember accurately some aspect of what went on. Uh, 
keep waiting. We're not going to do that. We've established that Paul's memory is not the best, but he actually had a decent memory short term, particularly back then. It, I just find it kind of unusual. This is also where we first learned about the fans' tendency to throw jelly babies at them. Right. As John says, once I got one in my eye, he didn't like that. Yeah. But this is also probably where the American fans said, oh, oh, okay, it's, it's jelly babies. Well, we call them jelly beans, thinking they were the same thing. That must, you know, that was one of the more dangerous things about uh, Beatlemania in the States. Yeah, for sure. That they were flinging these jelly beans, and jelly beans are hard. Yeah, jelly babies are you know kind of like uh, gummy bears because it was jelly something, jelly babies, jelly beans. Okay, you know. And then we get a little bit of instrumental, which may be a Beatles instrumental. I don't know. I can't tell. And I went and looked at the video, and it, it's also not clear from that. I mean, it does kind of sound like them. It does. And then we get Paul talking about that no one's going to want to know old men playing for me to you when they're 40. It's like, well, Paul, you'll be nearly 80 <laughs> and playing for me to you, and people are still want to know about it. Yeah. You go and tell that kid that, it's like, you're nuts. <laughs> you're crazy. Yeah, who could have guessed this? <laughs> One of those Doctor Who things, uh, there's one where he brought Vincent Van Gogh to the present day. And oh, yeah. It would be much the same thing if you could tell 21-year-old Paul McCartney, yeah, no, 60 years from now, honestly, people are going to want to go see you playing for me to you. <laughs> and then his ego got so big. <laughs> <laughs> this is what we were talking about earlier. You know, How long is it going to last? Oh, another four years. And this is also where, where John said you could be big-headed and say that we're going to last 10 years, but then we'll be done tomorrow. Yeah. I hope to have enough money to go in, into a business of my own by the time we um, do flop. And... Um, I mean, we don't know. It may be next week. It may be two or three years. But I think we'll be in the business, either up there or down there, for at least another four years. I've always fancied having a lady's hairdressing salon, you know, a string of them, in fact, and trot around with me stripes and my tails, you know, like a cup of tea, madam. It's only less interesting just because we've heard all of this. It's actually a really nice set of interviews with them and with Brian. Yeah, it is. It's like the core interviews from the beginning. Well, and, you know, so we were talking about how they reacted to interviewers and being interviewed. This is kind of a little bit different than that BBC interview in that they're a little bit more straightforward and they're a little bit less just kind of shy or not saying what they're actually thinking. Here, they actually kind of, okay. Yeah, this is where we're at. It, you can see them almost learning how to do interviews while they're doing them. Then that's followed by the excerpt of uh, She Loves You from 
Mersey Sound, and then some more contemporary interviews. Uh, uh, Ian Grant talking about uh, Pop Go the Beatles. This crazy show. Yeah. It was all about the me- the Beatles taking the Mickey. I like that. Right. And, and and the series gave them that headroom. And, and then, but we weren't going live. <laughs> no way they doesn't go live. It, it all had to be recorded so we could edit it together. Yeah. Then Bernie Andrews talking about Saturday Club, which is, you know, some of the things we were talking about earlier. Saturday Club was different than everything else because it was five numbers from your main act and five numbers from other acts. And it was assembled rather than just played through like a show. Right. 12 numbers in a three and a half hour session. And as we have mentioned, you know, needle time and how on British radio, you were only allowed to play records for so long. So it was uh, much more important for bands to go on shows like Saturday club and actually play their hit records. Keep them going. Yeah. Then a bit from John Lennon talking about Saturday Club. John, you've been talking about Saturday Club. You remember those glorious Bernie days. Andrews, and uh, I was just saying, I heard some of the tracks. Somebody must have pirated them, Bernie, <laughs> in America, you know. I've heard Saturday Club. We did a lot of uh, tracks that were never recorded on record for Saturday Club. A lot of stuff we'd been doing at the Cabin or Hamburg and that. There's some good stuff then. They were well recorded, too. Three Cool Cats, I think we did. Did you? You've still got them in your collection. I think I picked up a uh, pirate record of it, but I'm not sure because I buy all the pirate records and file them away, don't play them, you know, keep them. So they're all in mint condition? Yeah, stuff from Sweden and things like that where there was good live shows done. The best thing about this is John admitting that he bought all the pirate records, filed them away, and he didn't play them. He kept them and kept them in mint condition. It's like, wow. Yeah. I mean, we knew that. Um one of the stories we didn't get in May Pang's movie is like he sent May Pang to the very early fest to go and buy bootlegs for him. Yeah, that wasn't in there. That's too bad. It ends as all of these things end with more ambiance from the BBC, although it ends at the very end with Rolf Harris's Sun Arise, which we've also talked about a bit recently. That song was produced by George Martin and it was featured pretty heavily in the George Martin doc. Yeah. So now you've heard it. Too bad he cut it off. I was like, oh, man, keep going. (laughs) Well, you can go on YouTube and hear the rest if you really want to. (laughs) That's where we end. All in all, this is probably a bit lesser of the discs, although it's not bad. It's just, as I said, I kind of get the feeling that the Beatles were getting a little bit tired of the radio thing at this point. Yeah. And, you know, we are coming towards the end of the Pop Go the Beatles show when they will be able to do it when they want to do it for the next couple of years. Yeah, Beatlemania took up a lot of time. You know, when it gets really intense, you know, for filming and touring and... Well, and even here, you know, they were looking to just move on. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like we talk about 66 when they were ready to move on from touring. Right. You know, at this point, it's like, okay, we want to spend more time in the studio. Even then, we, it's like we want to spend more time in the studio. Going in for half a day, recording three songs in the morning, and then not being able to get back to it for another two, three weeks a month. Yeah. I think that must have stuck in their crawl. Yeah, I imagine it did. Especially when, you know, everyone says that Lennon was a strike while the iron's hot kind of guy. 
you know, I'm sure it's like he wanted to get back in the studio. Well, especially considering what was in their heads. It's like, we've got to get as much out of this as we can while we can, because no one's going to want to know in five years. <laughs> right. All right. That is disc six from the BBC. You want to say anything else about what we got here? It is interesting because it is this turning point. Yes. There are some good versions of songs. Don't Ever Change is great. Yeah. And, um, and Ooh My Soul and uh, you know even Paul's Long Toss Alley. So it definitely has value. It just kind of ends messily, little bits and pieces. And that's not anybody's fault, as you said. It's kind of puts it in a perspective. But, you know, it doesn't end cleanly with music so to speak that would have been nice but i mean that's also just kind of the way things were going with these shows yeah okay we're gonna do it and we're gonna do as good a job as we can doing it but that's not our main concern right now thanks everybody we will be back next week with the new show and we will be here Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. Sorcerer's Apprentice, by Ducard, part of it anyway, by the Concert Cabal Orchestra of Amsterdam, conducted by Jean Fournier. And I'll bet you hardly an Elvis Presley friend, <laughs> Elvis Presley fan heard a word of it, because I think they were all writing to Bill, Sir, I would have you know, Mr. Presley is the greatest thing in music. Anyway, quickly on to the next one. Um, this one goes from Brian Stevens of 4 Elton Road in Oxford to his brother Bill in BFPO 19. He likes, says Brian, wild colonial folk music. And I'm sure this will cheer him up immensely. Well, I love it too, Brian. It's uh, Rolf Harris with Johnny Spence's direction of the orchestra and Sunrise. Sunrise, she bringing the morning. Sunrise, bringing the morning. Fluttering the skirts all around Sunrise, she come with the dawning Sunrise, come with the dawning Spreading all the light all around Sunrise on the kangaroo Sunrise on the kangaroo port, glistening with you all around. Free. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Nice again.